So the Akedah, or the binding of Isaac as it's called, is one of the most powerful and important stories in our history. We read the story of the Akedah every single morning in our prayers. We read the story from the Torah on Rosh Hashanah. It's the Torah reading of the second day of Rosh Hashanah. We invoke the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, the story of how God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which is known as Akedah, literally binding. Um, on, uh, we read about it in many of our prayers. We have many, many Jewish poems that we read on various occasions that have, were written about the Akedah. It is without a doubt one of the most heart-wrenching and ethically challenging stories in the Torah. So what I'd like to do is first tell you the story in detail as told in the Torah, and then we'll get to some of the questions and ethical questions that people have on, tend to have on this story. So this story tells us, this story takes, a, uh, takes place later in Abraham's life. Uh, most of the events of Abraham's life are prior to this story. After Abraham was already tested many times, the Mishnah says Abraham was tested 10 times, and this, according to many views, was the last of those tests. So God asks Abraham to take his son Isaac, Yitzchak, and to a place that he will be shown, and bring him over there as an ola, as an elevated sacrifice, or a burnt sacrifice. It's not clear how old Isaac was at the time from the Torah itself. The Midrash tells us that Isaac was an adult. Yitzchak was an adult at the time. Um, according to Seder Olam, the um, book of Jewish, early book of Jewish history, it says that Yitzchak was 37 at the time. So quite an adult, a middle-aged man at the time almost. Um, and Abraham would have then, who he was 100 when Yitzchak was born, would have been 137. He lives to the ripe old age of 175 in next week's Parsha. We spoke about the ages two weeks ago. So there are some commentaries suggest from the reading seems to imply that maybe Yitzchak was younger. He is called lad or boy throughout the reading. Although we do find the term lad and boy used for adults many times in scripture. So it's not very unusual. Anyway, Abraham told, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him. So Avram wakes up early the next morning. Gets up straight away the next morning, very early. He cuts the wood to burn the sacrifice with. He takes Isaac. He takes his two servants, or two aides. He takes a knife and fire. It was hard then. They didn't have matches, right, to just strike a fire. right? So to strike, make your own fire was difficult. So they would generally have coals that they would hold on to um, that would last for hours, um, and they would constantly keep a supply of fire, keep it going, because lighting a new fire was a very challenging thing back then. So he takes fire with him. And uh, they start traveling. They head out. They travel for three days. Why it took three days? According to our tradition, the place where the Akedah took place was on Mount Moriah, which is, um, which is um, in Jerusalem, Har HaMoriah. Um, the Torah here calls it Eretz Hamoria, the land of Moriah. Um, it's not really that far from Beersheva where they lived at the time. Uh, yet, or Hebron is even closer. Yet it took three days. And um, at, after three days, they were able to see the place where God said, that place over there is where you should sacrifice Isaac. 
So Abraham leaves his servants behind. He doesn't want them to be there. It's just going to be him and Isaac, just the two of them. And they continue alone. And so Isaac turns to his father Abraham. And he says to his father, we have wood, and we have a knife, and we have the fire, but where's the animal for the sacrifice? So Abraham answers God, answers his son, God will provide the animal. Now, many Midrashim understand that to actually mean that Abraham was alluding to God will provide you as an animal. And many go further to say that Abraham said it clearly, or Isaac understood, that he was the sacrifice, and Rashi quotes this, and nevertheless Isaac was happy to keep going. Though he knew he was the sacrifice, though he was happy to go along with it, and um, that is the, although there are some commentaries suggest otherwise, the classic Jewish um, tradition is that Isaac was old enough to understand he was being sacrificed, old enough to protest and was well aware of it and was happy to go along with it. Happy, happy to go along. He was following God's command. Just like Abraham was happy to follow God's command. So they arrive at the spot that God had told them. Abraham builds an altar on this spot, which we believe is the on Mount Moriah, the spot where the temple will later stand. The altar stood in the spot where the altar in the temple will later be. And he builds this altar. He sets the wood on the altar. Then he tied up Isaac and he placed him on top of the wood. And then he stretched out his hand with the knife to slaughter his son. At that very moment, an angel calls out to him from heavens and tells him, do not harm the boy because now I know you are God-fearing and would not withhold your son from me. So Abraham releases his son and he looks up and he sees a ram caught there in the bushes. And so he goes over, he takes the ram and he offers the ram on the altar as a sacrifice in place of his son. An angel then called to him again and told him, because you had followed God and offered your son as a sacrifice, you will be greatly blessed. Your children will become to a great nation, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through them. That is the story. In short, there's a lot of additional midrashim, which um, of kind of additional details that happened in the story, um, based on our oral tradition, based on reading deeper readings of the verses, of various details, challenges that Abraham faced, and the like, um, in trying to fulfill. God's command. But that is the story of the Akedah, very one of the most famous stories in Judaism, one of the most important stories in Judaism. So the, the story of the Akedah is very, very powerful, very moving, um, somewhat concerning, um, and it raises some very, very big questions. So I'm going to try to address some of the questions that are raised by this question, one by one. People often ask, how can God have asked for human sacrifice? Just question that's the question people ask. So that's really, that's really of the less challenging questions on this story. 
Because clearly, God at no point ever intended that Isaac should be actually slaughtered and killed. It was never part of the intention. He was just testing him. Abraham doesn't know that. But God never intended Isaac to be slaughtered. There was never ever any intention for human sacrifice. It was simply a test to see what Abraham will do. But God did not at any point want human sacrifice. In fact, the Midrash points out, uh, then says that God later explained to Abraham, I told you to take your son Isaac and bring him up as a sacrifice. I didn't tell you to sacrifice him. I, or to slaughter him. I just said, bring him up as a sacrifice. You did. You brought him up on the altar as a sacrifice. Now, clearly God's words were in, said in a way that Abraham would understand that he meant to sacrifice him. And clearly that was God's intention for Abraham to understand that. Abraham didn't know that God would tell him last minute not to. It was a test. But at no point did God ever intend to for. Isaac to actually be killed. So, so that's clear. God does not want human sacrifice, never did want even temporarily, and at no point ever wanted Isaac to be killed. It was just a test, and Abraham passed the test. He blindly followed God. God stopped him from actually carrying it out. Yet there are still some major questions on this story, many, many major questions. I think the questions on this story can be split into two general issues. The first is, why did God ask Abraham to do it? What was the point of this exercise? Abraham had many challenges in his life. People struggle challenges, and God maybe gives us challenges to test us. But really, why did God have to tell him to sacrifice his son? What was the point of the whole exercise? What was the point of this whole thing? A second question that is asked, and this is really the ethical challenge, is on Abraham. When God tells Abraham to go sacrifice yours, his son, how could Abraham listen to God telling him to do such immoral, an immoral and wrong thing? Should Abraham not stand up to God and say, no, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. Why would Abraham listen to God telling him to do something immoral and wrong? So I think these are the two major questions that are asked. If I'm missing any questions on this story that don't fit into one of those two, um, please share. So Abraham didn't even question God? He did not question God. Animal sacrifice, yes. And we already twice did a class on the question of why God wants animal sacrifices. So we have two podcasts on it. Okay, so he did ask, people just didn't do it. Okay. People did do sacrifices. Yes, but it was because God asked. They didn't just do it. Yes, yes, correct. Yes, yes. So let's deal with these questions one by one. Let's first deal with the first question. Why did God ask Abraham to do this? What was the point? So the Torah itself really gives the answer. The Torah itself says, before, that before it even opens the story, it says God tested Abraham. It was a test. 
later, after it was over and God told him, don't sacrifice your son, I didn't really mean it, um, was just testing you, God, well, God tells Ab- the angel tells Abraham, now I know that you are God-fearing and did not withhold your son from me. So God was, the reason why God did it is because God wanted to test Abraham. This was not the only time God tested Abraham. The Mishnah tells us that God tested Abraham ten times. But this, according to most commentaries, was the final test and the most difficult one. God was testing Abraham. In fact, the Midrash says, the, um, when God tells Abraham to take his son, the verse reads, Kachna, please take your son. Now, in general, when God tells people to do things throughout Scripture, he never says, please. God just tells you, do it. He doesn't say, please do it. Why over here did God say, please? So the Midrash explains and Rashi quotes it. God did not says to Abraham, please listen to me this time, because if this one you don't pass, then all your other tests would have been for nothing if you could have passed the final one. So please listen to this one. So this is Abraham's final test. So why did God tell, what's the point of this exercise? Why did God tell Abraham to do it? He was testing him with a, he had already tested him, but this was a very, very difficult, his most difficult test. But why does God need to test Abraham? In Judaism, we believe that God is all-knowing, knows everything, including the future. So God knows and knows people's abilities and knows what people would do. So if, why is God unsure how Abraham will respond? God knows that Abraham will follow him blindly. So what does God need to test Abraham for? We need to test people. We have driver's tests and uh, tests for college tests and school tests. And as adults, sometimes if you have a profession, you have tests. We need to test people to see if they really know it or if they're really going to do it, what they're going to do. Because we don't know. But God is all-knowing. Why does God need to test? So there are two general answers given to this question. Maimonides, the Rambam, explains that, and this really answers the question in general, why God tests people, why did God test Abraham? The Rambam explains that the goal is not for God to know, but for us humans to know, for us to know that Abraham passed the test. It's important for us to recognize that Abraham passed the test. That God told him to do something and he passed it blindly. Not for God. God knew that he's going to do it. It was for us, for later generations, to take a lesson from Abraham. For Abraham to serve as a role model for us. That when God tells us to sacrifice our sons or something similar along those lines, we will blindly follow God in the way Abraham did. So that when we say God tests people, it's not so that God should know if they will pass the test. God knows. It's for later generations, for us humans, to know, or to, for, to serve as a role model for us humans to know what, how a person should serve God, what we should be doing. That's one answer given as to why God tested Abraham and tests people. 
The other answer that is given is uh, from the Ramban, Ramosha ben Nachman, who explains that the goal was for Abraham himself to grow as a result. When you test somebody, and not just a written driving test, but a driver's test, but when you test somebody where they face a challenge and they overcome a challenge, you haven't only proven that that person has the ability to overcome the challenge, you've also made the individual stronger and better as a result. When we overcome a challenge, it changes us as a person. It brings out a part of us that we didn't have before, that we weren't aware of before, that we never expressed previously. Every time a person faces a challenge and overcomes that test, overcomes that challenge, it brings out something within them. It helps them develop themselves in their own character. So the purpose of God testing Abraham and the purpose of God testing people in general is not just for others to take a lesson for them to serve as a role model, but for the individual themselves to grow as a result. It helps them grow. In Hebrew, the word for test is nes, nisa, nisayo. Now the Hebrew word nes can also be a banner. A banner, really, a banner is called a nes. So a banner really expresses both of these explanations. A banner is something that everyone sees. It's a role model. The person who passes the test becomes a role model, a banner of how a person should live, how you can overcome challenges. And it is a banner in the sense that it is something that is up high and uplifted. An individual who passes the test themselves get raised up, they get uplifted because they've passed this difficult test. Another reason given for a test is why God tests us, and Chassidus explains, that a test forces us to step out of our normal, regular lives. We have a thing called human inertia, where you essentially continue doing the same thing you've always done. And you never change. It's hard for people to grow, for people to change become a totally different, totally better person. You're going to keep doing the same thing until you can't do it anymore. And then you're forced to change. You've got to do something different, something new. So that's just human nature. When we face a challenge, it forces us to do things differently, to do things better, to become a new individual. It builds our inner strength. It builds powers we never knew we had. It changes us as a person. The Hebrew word nes, in addition to meaning test and banner, also has a third meaning, which is miracle. A miracle is, nature is the way things always work, and then suddenly things don't work that way, things change. It doesn't follow the regular order of things, that's a miracle. Things, it's different than normal, the unexpected happens. A Nisayon, a test, is really the same kind of thing. It's a miracle in a person. It makes a person change. Instead of being normal, now you've got to do something unexpected, do something different because you're facing a challenge. So those are the reasons given either because of um, uh, to be a become a role model for people, to um, 
help the person grow or really to change the person and make you someone different. These are reasons why God tests people. That's why God tested Abraham 10 times. And that would explain why God tested Abraham this time. A couple questions. I know Annette was waiting. Um, the angel comes down and tells um, Abraham not to, um, not to slay Isaac. Um, but he, the, what he says is confusing to me. Since you did not withhold your, your son and only son for me. That's the second time. Do it two times. The first time he says... For me. What is the angel's meaning for me? For God. For God. The angel is speaking for God. He's God's messenger. Yes, Don. I'm troubled by just that. God directly challenges Abraham. And yet when Abraham is successful, he sends his minions to say, Oh, I did it. How come God himself did not say to Abraham, You have success. That's a very interesting question. Why did God why did God himself go to Abraham and tell him to do it? And then when he told him not to, he sent his messengers. So commentaries explain that a command has to come directly from God. Commands don't come from angels. Commandments always come from God. So it was a command initially, and so it has to come from, um, it comes from God. But when God retracts something, he never does it directly. He never contradicts himself directly. And so therefore he had an angel do it. But an angel is an expression of God. And... The angel is an expression of God. And we find throughout scripture that angels speak on behalf of God, expressing God. In fact, many commentaries suggest that we're thinking of it too materialistically when we think of God versus angels. In other words, the way God expresses himself in this world is angelic. And we shouldn't think of angel, the Ramban says this, Abarbanel says this, we shouldn't think of an angel as a noun, but think of an angel as a verb. It's the way God expresses himself. But there is clearly in scripture a difference between God direct and God through angel. In other words, it's clearly a different type of expression of God. Um, God direct is a more open expression of God than through an angel. The exact difference, I don't know. Um, perhaps you have to experience it to know, but there appears to be some difference in the level of revelation, whether it's coming through God or through an angel. But an angel, think of it as an expression of God. You say that uh, that God never rescinds a commandment, yet you specifically point out the verbiage that says that it was not a commandment to uh, kill his son, but only to present him as if he was a sacrifice. So since he's not, or he's being consistent with what he said, why would God not be the one to come down and say Good so? question, I don't know. Stump the rabbit. <laughs> okay. So, Mark, did you have a question? Yeah, I, I, I was trying to extrapolate what the takeaway is from these lessons. For example, um, oh, we're going to get to that. We'll talk about the takeaways. To, we're going to we'll do this. If, if, if any one of us feels God commands us to sacrifice, I'm going to deal with that. Okay. Okay. 
So the other big question, and this is really the moral and ethical question of the story, is how can we celebrate Abraham for rushing to listen to God to sacrifice his son? Is that the right thing to do? If God tells us to do something immoral and unethical, should we be doing it? How would that differentiate us from other belief systems that tell their followers to hurt other people, to blow up other people or do other immoral things? How, does, how can Abraham listen to God telling him to do something immoral, to do something that is ethically wrong? So to answer that question, we really need to dig in and define what are morals and what is right and wrong. We often think of there being natural morals. Killing is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Sexual immorality is wrong. Maybe people don't agree with that anymore. But there are certain, there are certain values that are certain things are immoral and wrong. But then when you think about it, it isn't as simple as it sounds. Take killing, for example. Killing is wrong. Is killing babies wrong? Is killing unviable babies wrong? Is killing a fetus in their mother's stomach before birth wrong? What about killing somebody who is harmful to society? What about killing an adult who is terminally ill? What about killing a person who committed murder? What about killing an individual who is threatening the life of others? What about killing a large number of people to neutralize a threat from one person? So there are many, many ethical questions that arise when it comes to killing. Killing is wrong is a very general statement. When you start breaking it down, it's not so easy. Humans have come up with many different answers to these questions over history. Every society in every time and place has answered these questions differently. In our own lifetime, we have seen questions about moral issues within society answered very differently. In fact, in our current society, there's some very, very big cultural debates over some of these big questions. So we believe that humans on their own do not have the capacity to decide for ourselves what is morally right from wrong. In fact, what makes something right? And what makes something wrong? Because humans decided it as such? Because an individual? Because a society as a whole? There cannot be an independent, objective, moral or ethic if there isn't someone who decides right from wrong. Who decides it? Is it just whatever society decides is right? So if you happen to live in Nazi Germany where it's right to kill Jews, well, you did the right thing. You didn't do anything illegal, right? You did, you did what was ethically right. If you live in the Soviet Union where it's right to torture um, prisoners, then you didn't do anything wrong. You followed the law. That's what society says is okay. Are you doing anything ethically wrong? Who decides what's ethical and moral? So we believe 
that humans don't have the capacity or the authority to decide ethics and morals um, or to, in, we don't decide what's right and what's wrong. It is the creator. The creator of the universe is the ultimate decider of what is objectively right and what is objectively wrong. He's the one that decided it is wrong to kill and then put in our psyche, in our minds, in our natural minds that we feel um, horrified by murder. He put it, he decided it is wrong to steal and put in our psyche, in our minds that we feel horrified by stealing. We feel it to be wrong. He decided it is that sexual immorality is wrong and put it, made us feel uncomfortable with sexuality or public sexuality or immoral sexuality. He created us that way because he made the rules. And where it gets complicated, God makes the rules as to what is right and wrong. So God is the only arbitrator of right and wrong. We don't get the choice to make those decisions. God made those decisions and then informed us what is right and what is wrong. And in complex cases, he cannot cover every possible scenario. He gave us the guidelines to be able to figure out ethical right from ethical wrongs. For example, the Torah allowed for death penalty in certain limited cases. We are required to kill to save lives. So God decides what is right and what is wrong. When God says to do something, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter if you feel it to be right or wrong. God is the one who decides what is right and what is wrong. God saying it makes it right. God saying don't do something makes it wrong. It is not up to us humans to decide right from wrong. God ultimately decides right from wrong. And perhaps that is the greatest lesson of the Akedah that God was trying to instill in Abraham, that it is ultimately not you who decides right from wrong, but it is God who decides right from wrong. So when it came to the Akedah and God told Abraham to slaughter his son, it felt wrong. It went against our values. It went against the values that God had taught Abraham. But God is the ultimate decider. And God told Abraham, now this is what I want you to do. And therefore he had to do it. Throughout history, there have been many people who have committed horrific crimes and blamed it on God. Say, God told me to do so. It is my religious obligation. We Jews believe God to be compassionate. God to value life. God does not want us to harm innocents. And therefore, as a rule, God does not tell us to harm other people. There have been exceptions, like God's instructions to Abraham, which never actually were followed through, didn't actually mean it. But there were other exceptions where God instructed us to do in throughout history and scripture. God instructed people to do things that were perhaps that were that would we would consider cruel but generally as a rule god does not tell us to harm others when someone claims that god told them to do something horrific like kill people unless they are abraham moses someone who knows for certain or we know god spoke to them we reject them and do everything they told them that to stop them 
Because God, not because God cannot demand such a thing, he generally will not, but because we know that God didn't tell them. They are mistaken in a very, gener- in a very dangerous way. We only follow God's instructions if we are absolutely certain that that is what God wants. Maimonides asks the obvious question. Well, how did Abraham know it was God speaking to him? Maybe it wasn't God speaking to him. Maybe it was a mistake. He should have suspected. God doesn't usually say those kind of things. So maybe it was his imagination. Maybe he was being misled. So Abraham answers that as a prophet, Abraham was a prophet, whom God communicates with, and we've spoken previously about prophecy, is someone who has an open, definitive communication with God. Abraham was absolutely certain, as someone who had spoken to God many times before, he was absolutely certain he was receiving prophecy and God was speaking to him. And he only listened to God because he was absolutely certain of that prophecy. And only in such an instance would one listen to God, just as when the angel told him not to, he was absolutely certain that God was telling him to stop. But somebody who is not a prophet, or who just imagines that they're a prophet, and says that God told them to do something, don't believe them. Stop them. Even if it's just frivolous. Definitely if it's something harmful and dangerous. And just to quickly point out, um, not directly relevant to our class today, it's a little off topic. In our class on prophecy, we asked, how do you know if someone's a real prophet? So Maimonides discussed this at length in a very famous letter. And he makes a very important point. Prophets are not regular people. First, an individual must be a recognized leader, a recognized saintly individual, a recognized scholar. Somebody who is widely renowned and respected for their scholarship, for their tzidkus, for their saintly, saintliness of following God's command. And then such a person God can appear to. But if some fellow wakes up, as every town in history has had their own prophets, moshiachs, um, JCs or the like, every town has had, and they're all over still today, many self-proclaimed prophets. If some fellow wakes up saying, I got a prophecy, we just ignore them. Lock them up, right? They're not, we don't take them seriously, right? It has to be somebody whom we already take seriously. Otherwise, don't listen to them. I, I know this may be a little bit off the subject, but we call them the five books of Moses because Moses wrote down these chronicles. And yet here in the first book of the Bible, uh, Moses is not even alive. And yet you talk about precise language, etc. How did Moses know to write these things? It's off topic, but I'll give you a one-line answer. Um, why, how did Moses know to write the Torah? God dictated the whole Torah to Moses. So for Abraham, the instructions to slaughter his son were not just challenging because they went against his values and against ethics and morals. And not just challenging, of course, because he had waited 100 years for this son. He was born when he was 100 years old. And of course, it's challenging to kill a son whom you've waited for so Any child, got, you know, to lose a child, let alone a son you've waited so long for. But it was also challenging because it went against everything he knew about God until then. 
Abraham spent his life teaching monotheism to the world. He was the ultimate preacher of monotheism. He lived in a polytheistic world and told everyone about God, taught everyone about God, taught the values of God, including that God rejects human sacrifice. The Canaanites he lived among practiced human sacrifice. Abraham spent over a hundred years preaching against human sacrifice. He spent his entire life preaching against it. What God is now asking him to do would go against everything he had ever said, everything he had ever taught, everything he had ever stood for. Furthermore, God had told Abraham that his son Isaac would be the father of a great nation, this nation to whom he would give the promised land, to whom he would make a covenant with and would be his chosen people. By slaughtering his son, God, he would end God's predictions. He would make God's prophecy impossible. If Isaac dies with no children, he wasn't yet married, he had no children. If Isaac dies, that's the end of this great nation. The end of all those predictions. The end of Sinai, the end of the chosen people, the end of getting the promised land. Everything God had told him. It would be the end of his monotheistic movement. His son Isaac was being groomed to take over his movement of teaching monotheism to the world. It would be the end. It would be the end of his legacy. So the instruction to slaughter his son did not just go against his morals and values. It wasn't just difficult for a, child, for a parent to hurt their child, let alone a child who you waited so many years to have. It went against everything he stood for, everything he preached, everything he had ever said, and against the promises that God had given him. It was counter to every single part of God, Abraham's being. Every part of his life and everything he had lived for and stood for. And yet, when God asked Abraham to do it, Abraham got up early the next morning. He did not ask any questions. He got up early and rushed to follow God's command. He blindly followed what God had asked him. even though it went against everything that he stood for. Now, I should point out, when God said he was going to punish the city of Sodom, God, Abraham begged God to change his mind. But that was God said he was going to do something. Here, God instructed Abraham to do something. When God tells you something, you don't argue. So here, God, Abraham, so Abraham doesn't argue. He blindly follows God. Now, Abraham had previously sacrificed himself. The Midrash tells us that when Abraham was still in Ur Kastu, when he was a young man and had first started preaching about God, Nimrod, the king in Ur Kastim, threw him into a furnace as punishment to kill him for his rejecting the idols, to reje rejecting the um, gods of the day. And Abraham was miraculously saved. But he sacrificed his life for God already. He was prepared to preach and to believe in God even though he had the option of rejecting his monotheistic belief and saving his life. He refused to do so. So he had already sacrificed his life for God. Many people since Abraham have sacrificed themselves for Judaism and for God. Sacrificing one's life uh, and in Jewish history we have a long history of martyrdom. We once did a class on it. 
And sacrificing yourself for your beliefs is not even unique to Judaism. It exists in many cultures and belief systems where people who sacrifice. But the Akedah was different. Abraham did not just sacrifice his son. Sacrificing your child is probably harder than sacrificing yourself. Most people give their lives for their children. But he didn't just sacrifice his son. He sacrificed everything he believed in. Everything he stood for. Went against everything he ever preached and ever believed in. To blindly follow God. He didn't only give up his son to God. He gave every part of himself and everything he stood for. He gave up for God's command. God was teaching Abraham, and by extension, as we mentioned earlier, teaching us something. In our relationship with God, we need to be prepared to blindly follow, to sacrifice everything, to blindly follow God's commandments, even if we don't like them, even if we don't understand them. And that is why the Akedah stands at the center of Judaism. It is so important that we read it every day. We read it on Rosh Hashanah. We invoke it all the time throughout our prayers. It remains one of the key moments in Judaism. It's become one of the most important symbols of Judaism. We Jews have survived for thousands of years, while many others are long gone, because we repeatedly were prepared to sacrifice for Judaism. Millions of Jews over the generations preferred to die than reject Judaism. Almost every Jew today is likely a descendant of Jews who were martyred for being Jewish because they were Jewish. And people who often had a choice to convert to a different religion or reject Judaism, and they refused to do so. They were ready to follow God even when it was hard. Thankfully, we don't face such threats anymore. But we do find face challenges in our own life. And the Akedah teaches us that we need to blindly follow God's instructions. When there's a challenge, even when we feel maybe it's wrong, maybe it's difficult, it's hard, we still have to follow God's instructions. Now to be clear, in Proverbs, in Mishlei, it tells us, The ways of the Torah are ways of pleasantness. Its paths are paths of peace. Living a Torah life is a better life. It's pleasant to follow God's commandments. Keeping Shabbos is beautiful. It's pleasant. Keeping kosher, following God's commandments, keeping the holidays, having a Jewish family. Following God's commandments is pleasant. It's beautiful. It's a better way to live. It's a more beautiful life. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. It's not always easy. There are times when it's difficult. There are times where you cannot keep your job and observe Shabbos. It's become a lot easier today thanks to we have laws in place that don't allow people to discriminate. It was once very difficult. There was once a time that been the Great Depression or before um, when you couldn't get a job without working on Shabbos. It was very difficult. My grandmother told me stories when she grew up in New York of how people sacrificed. They sacrificed everything. They lived without electricity, without running water because they couldn't afford to pay for it um, because they didn't have a job. 
Um, they starved because they wouldn't work on Shabbos. So generally, the Torah is pleasant. Generally, being Jewish is pleasant. But there are moments that it's difficult. And the Akedah teaches us that we must follow God's instructions regardless of the cost, regardless of whether it's easy and regardless of whether we like it. And only if we can follow God's instructions when it is difficult, only then can we really keep Torah going. The reason why Judaism has lasted so long is because we're prepared. Yes, Torah is generally pleasant. And a Jewish life is a better life. But sometimes it's challenging. And if you're not prepared to follow it when it's difficult, if you're not prepared to follow even in the most challenging moments, you, we will not be able to keep the Torah going. You cannot only keep it when it's easy. You cannot only keep it when it's pleasant. You must also do it when it is extremely difficult. I'm just going to con conclude with a quick anecdote that just happened to me um, two days ago. So this past Friday night, we had an event here at the JCC for the kids. And so we decided, maybe against our better judgment, to bring our one-year-old to Shul. Uh, we drove, I drove him here before Shabbos. Oh, thing for kids. We thought he'll appreciate it. And he would walk home. He walks. But anyway, we made a mistake. We stayed too late. And um, he was already getting tired. And so on the walk home, we don't live very far, but on the walk home, he gave up. He refused to walk any further. Now, one of the 39 prohibitions on Shabbos is it's forbidden from carrying in an open area that's not fenced off on Shabbos. So we cannot carry our child on Shabbos. So we've had this. This has happened to us before. And we're, we're kind of not new to this. And usually you could coax a kid to do it. But he was done. And no matter how hard we tried, for quite a while, he was not, he was not budging. And um, what we did is there is a workaround, which we ended up doing, where me together with my older kids, um, we passed him. You can pass one person to the next, and we passed him till we got home, which was not easy. And we did get him home. He made it, home. it took about an it took it took about an hour to go four blocks. One person passing to the next. No, we did not carry. You, you, carry. you can pass less than four yeah, cubits at if each. As the the law is, let me finish the story and you'll ask the questions later. The law is that you can move less than four cubits at a time, if you give it to the next person. So we 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 use that workaround and we got him home. But as the Shabbos, so as. As we were doing this, some of the neighbors came out to watch because he was crying a little, as you could imagine. And I was thinking, you know what, this is a very difficult, I mean, it's not challenging in the sense of, you know, my grandmother's generation who were, didn't have jobs and couldn't feed their family. It's not challenging in the sense of our great-grandparents in the Soviet Union who were killed um, for their, their Jewish observance and the like. It's not challenging in that sense. Um, we're challenging in other places where Jews have been killed for being Jewish. But it's a small, minor challenge. It's challenging. And I was it thinking, was sorry, it, it was challenging. <coughs> it was challenging. And of course, it would not occur to us to desecrate the Shabbos and break the law, despite the challenge of the moment. But I thought to myself, 
you know, he's going through, my son right now is suffering, right? Poor kid, he's suffering. It's not his fault. We made this bad decision to bring him to Shul. It was our fault and um, God's fault because we have this commandment not to carry on Shabbos. And so I was thinking as I was sitting there trying to coax him that he's suffering, right? He's in pain. Poor kid, right? He's really suffering. And it's not fair to really be putting him through this. But then it dawned on me, and I really thought about this as I thought about this, that yes, you know what, he's going through a challenging moment in, you know, he's less than two years old and going through a challenging moment. But the fact that we are doing this and going through this and refusing to bend the law or bend the rule, um, you know, just to get him home to make the poor kid a little bit happier, it's difficult for him now and he's suffering unfairly now. But as a result, he's now, it's going to be ingrained in him, in the other children, and in ourselves, and as he grows up, that the Torah is unbendable. It's something that even in challenging situations, you don't walk away from. Even the most difficult situations. These kind of difficult moments are going to give him and us the fortitude in even more difficult moments to stand up for it and ensure that we keep the Torah going through each generation. And so really the lesson of the Akedah is that yes, it was the most difficult thing God could have ever asked from someone. The most challenging thing, not only heart-wrenching and difficult for a parent to do, not only difficult ethically and morally difficult because it stood against everything Abraham had ever, had ever stood for and ever lived for and his whole future. But yet, if we don't stand strong in this challenging moments, then we aren't truly loyal and truly dedicated to it and it will not continue. The only way we can keep Torah alive and keep the commandments alive is if we're prepared to sacrifice for it as well. Because the moment we bend on one thing, then it becomes a slippery slope. You keep bending on everything else. And that's really what's kept us. So yes, Torah is generally pleasant. Don't think it's hard to keep Torah. But there are challenging moments. And we have to be prepared to stand strong even in those most challenging moments. So...